Early Friday, beginning of October, Indian summer outside. Reminds me of that song by Joda Sen, Letter Indian. Hope this pronunciation close to the French one, same as English. Hope that my East European accent doesn't bother your ears and you still get the main point and all the meaning I put in this podcast. So I was just waiting for the tram at the station and notice a guy with a backpack and two flags on it, German and Ukrainian one. I came up and asked him if he speaks Ukrainian, because why not, we live only one time. And he gave me an answer sort of out of nowhere. I'm proud that I pay taxes in the country that supports Ukraine. And that pay taxes made me confused, because you know, this is so American. But then I reconfused myself, so to speak, and found out that he was actually from the US. But there is something more than that, such as being born in Mongolia, growing up in the US and now studying master in Germany. What a melting pot. I'm pleased to introduce to you Sola, my guest on this episode. How are you doing, buddy? Good, good. Uh, start of the semester, so we're back in the swing of things and uh, working on my way down to uh, get ready to write my thesis for... Your master thesis. Yeah, East Asian studies, so political science, yeah, modern East Asian studies. So my research focuses... Uh, more or less on Chinese foreign policy in regards to the Russian Federation, taking a closer look on what's happening on their bilateral relations standalone. So sans any sort of tertiary input. So just really taking a kind of a deeper dive into what's happening on the ground as of today between the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation and sort of taking a outsiders sort of yeah hands-off approach <laughs> look into what's happening there just to get a better sense of, of, of what, what goes on between the two today um so yeah but you um you you grew up in the u.s but you were born in mongolia could you say something about that so i was uh i was born in the capital city uh called Ulaanbaatar, which translates to the um, to the red hero it's a legacy of the soviet era naming uh before that Lambator was called Orga, uh, 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 different variations for Nistelhot, uh, which means just variations of capital, because it was the capital. But the nomadic capital was kind of, it used to shift around. It wasn't like permanently stationed in one place. Yeah. And uh, how old were you when you and your parents moved to the uh, US? I was uh, a month, I turned seven years old a month after we uh a month and a half after we came stateside so yeah i was basically seven i was six and turning seven which means that you did not go to the primary school in mongolia right yeah no i never got a chance to go to school what about kindergarten i actually never went to kindergarten either yeah it was um i remember in the summers we spent the summers up in a cabin um about probably five five miles north of this capital city with my grandma so is there anything that you remember about your the place when you and the parents lived like back then almost 20 years ago in Mongolia in terms of you know was it like an apartment or a private house so the physical construction was that the apartment building where I grew up was the same one where my parents grew up in I would be the second generation sedentary um, because my grandparents they were still nomadic my parents were the first ones to not live in a traditional nomadic lifestyle 
and then I was a second generation born after that. And the building itself was a legacy, one of those Khrushchevkas, five-story apartment, uh, cinder block, square apartment, um, and it's just a classic uh, socialist uh, 1960 era uh, Khrushchevka apartments. Yeah, I mean, Khrushchevka stay everywhere. I also grew up in uh, living in Khrushchevka on the second floor with my parents and almost in every country which had connection to, to USSR, you know, there is a, a lot of these type of buildings. Also, for example, in Germany, east of Germany, in Berlin, you know, there is a district in Berlin called Marzahn and uh, well, well, live a lot of people from post-Soviet countries. And if you go there, you'll see that there are a lot of, you know, buildings such as, for example, Khrushchevka style, uh, but not Khrushchevka. Khrushchevka is a building with five floors. And there is another one called Brezhnevka, uh, which is called by the name of, you know, Brezhnev. So with nine floors. And um, uh, this is like a really iconic, you know, uh, building. I want to ask you about the city where you spend your first, you know, first six, almost seven years of your life, which is Ulan Bator. What would you say about the city itself? How is it like to, to, to live there? So the capital city, Ulaanbaatar, sits in a small uh, depression, uh, meaning that it's surrounded by like small mountains uh, on its perimeter. And from the window, from the second story window, you could actually see the little mountains on the horizon, and which means at the time before I left, you could actually see the, the mountains on the side. But now, when you go back, I heard that like from the city center, you can't even see... Uh, the, the landscape anymore just because of how many new buildings were being were already built yeah just the the, the cityscape the the view the city view land uh, landschaft <laughs> changed i guess yeah skyline the skyline changed but it is beautiful there right i mean the city surrounded by nature such as mountains and is it beautiful there the problem is that like since the city itself was planned um back in the 50s and 60s they had not foreseen the increase in population and capacity. So it is way over capacity in the sense of uh, electrical, plumbing, and heating, and just two power plants that are barely enough to supply enough electricity for the city. And then since the increasing urbanization in the past two decades, um, the Gir districts are propping up, which are the traditional Mongolian homes, the felt homes, um, the circular ones. And they're propping up on the perimeter, on the edges of the city. And uh, because there there is no centralized heating, people resort to burning coal and anything they can get their hands on in the winter because the daytime temperatures in, in the winter is like minus 30 Celsius. And that's about what minus, yeah, Fahrenheit is also pretty similar. Is there anything that you miss about your hometown, specifically from your hometown? For example... I am from the south of Ukraine and spend most of the time there and uh, I miss the air because, you know, the region and the city, they all by the sea and there has some kind of special uh, air, you know, all of, all of the people who go abroad, you know, and then they come back at some point and back to the, uh, to the south, to Odessa, you know, they all notice this difference in this air um, feeling, you know, because air is just different, related to uh, some kind of, you know, um, romantic perspective, or it's just something else, I don't know, maybe there is also a physical aspect of that, but air is different, that's what I miss, and couldn't find here anywhere, you know. Is there anything that you miss specifically that is only in uh, Ulaanbaatar? So for me, what I would miss is uh, how sunny it is, the sunshine. Because in Mongolia, that part of the world, the plateau, it sits on a bit of a plateau. I think it was like 2,000 meters above sea level. So the, the physical atmosphere is a little thinner. That means 
the night sky is a little clearer and it's an amazing um, night sky and and because of that it's always sunny so we do have our four seasons i mean it rains uh spring autumn summer winter and then you can experience all four seasonal temperatures and weather patterns rainy stormy sunny foggy cloudy all in one day but usually the skies clear up after a few hours uh and it's you'll have sunshine almost every every day and so yeah it's one of the sunniest countries in the world i believe and the uh what was it uh small little phrases in English that people use to describe other Asian countries. So, for example, Japan, land of the rising sun. Um, Korea is the land of the morning calm. And then Mongolia is the land of the eternal blue sky. Let's get back to this immigrational part of your life. You turned seven, right? And you, you went to, uh, you moved to uh, the U.S. with your mom, with your dad. So I just want to ask, what was the motivation of this, uh, you know, immigrational decision? Um, what was behind that? Yeah, so she came over to the States uh, for the medical infrastructure, the medical, one of the best medical hospitals and uh, systems are yeah. also in Boston as well, um, from everything ranging from Longwood to um, Mass General and so forth. What about your dad? What did he do when you moved? Uh, so your mom moved there for a study. What about your dad? Yeah, well, for him, it was also, um, you know, we're, we're always a team and we stick together. And um, he did everything that was necessary to bring home the bacon to put food on the table and ensure that uh, my sister and I never went hungry, which we're incredibly thankful for and appreciative of. And uh, so he, we, we were all there for the ride and to support my mom uh, while she was studying. And, and what specifically did your dad do back then, getting money from where? Yeah, I, there's, there isn't a single thing that he hasn't done in a round of Metro Boston, I would say, for example, like from, from being a pizza delivery man for Domino's all the way to being a courier for the hospital uh, network, um, delivering um, fresh blood supplies between the hospitals. Um, yeah, anything you can get your hands on. Did your parents could speak uh, English back then in the beginning? No, so uh, not really. Yeah. My mother studied a little bit of English back in Mongolia um, because she worked as a interpreter for, for one of the small UN agencies at the time. But, you know, <laughs> you hit the ground running and reality hits you in the face and you realize that, like, yeah, obviously learning a language uh, abroad and then coming to that actual country where they speak it is two entirely different things. So you mentioned Boston, right? But was it like outside of the city or in the city? Uh, suburbs, one of the well, one of the suburbs of Boston, yeah, just, just outside of the city, yeah. You, you can take the transportation, public tea. So yeah, it's been already some time since you graduated from the university in the US, but then you moved to Germany, yeah? And my question would be, uh, why Germany? Why did you decide for Germany and master thesis here at the university in Frankfurt? Right. So when I was in my junior year in college, when I was in my undergraduate back at the University of Pittsburgh, I um, double majored in political science and Germanistic German studies, because as I was approaching, finishing up my political science major, I had um, a little bit of a, could squeeze it in, I guess, so as to say. So in my junior year in college, I ended up doing a an EU institution's um, semester abroad, study abroad in the city of Freiburg and Breisgau in the uh, German federal state of uh, Baden-Württemberg, sort of 30-minute ride from, from France and, and, and um, from the French and Swiss border, so right there in the Black Forest. And that was my first time really in Europe and abroad out of, this, out of, out of the States for an extended period of time. Yeah, wonderful eight months, uh, great memories, uh, met fantastic new people and sort of... Uh, got a rose-colored 
glasses view of Germany at the time, just because of sort of how like uh, not typical Freiburg is from the rest of Germany in the sense that it's nestled in the Black Forest. It's the student town, a big university, uh, Uni Freiburg, and then it's just a small, quaint, little medieval Altstadt. Everything is just like picturesque and you can go hiking a five-minute walk anywhere you are. And it's always sunny too. Yeah, Freiburg is nice and sunny because it's that sunny part of Germany and Europe. So I, after I did my semester abroad, came back in the end of end of the summer of that year, um, came back to Pittsburgh and finished up my undergraduate. So college, finished up college. And What is your next step? What are you going to do after you're done with your master program? At the moment, I'm thinking of, uh, of finding a job here, either in Frankfurt or somewhere else in Central Europe or wherever I can find a job here. Because um, I would like to experience the professional world, world here, what it's like for to work for, for a company or a firm here in Europe, and whether it's the private or public sector. And then um, ideally, I would also like to um, go to East Asia to live there, uh, to live and work there for at least a year or two as well, just because uh, I would personally like to, as an, as, an, as an Asian man myself, who has never gotten the chance to live and work in Asia, um, sort of, I think that would be a, uh, an interesting experience uh, for, for, for me to have. My next question would be, uh, it feels like you kind of preserved your Mongolian identity, but uh, at the same time, growing up as a kid in a completely different environment, what, what kind of interaction was it between Mongolian identity and the American melting pot reality? Yeah, so in a nutshell, kurz gesagt, I would say that really on a ground level, day-to-day basis, as a kid and when I was growing up in the States, you know, you never really paid too, too much attention into that part of the old world where we came from. Um, obviously, it was extant. I have this one vivid memory uh, in second grade. It was a sunny morning and I was just sort of like still kind of confused and um, kind of on the fence of my emotions at the time. And I was just like, you know, as a kid and just wondering and as I was stepping into the school, uh, I was I, I looked up and it was a nice blue sunny sky in the morning, and it just reminded me so much of back of like when I was a kid, still back in Mongolia, because of how sunny and blue the sky was in the mornings. And I was like, okay, and I was like, uh, which means like um, I, from from the eternal blue sky, please give me my strength to to go on <laughs> so that was like you know in second grade i remember telling that to myself but otherwise otherwise you know you're just hanging out with so many other american kids and it's such a mix of elementary school and day-to-day basis and um so when i was in third grade parents moved to a different part of the town or a different town in boston suburbs and so i switched schools at the time and i remember at that point it was a pretty it was a majority sort of uh, white american neighborhood and our school, you know, sort of white American kids and students. And well, I was in third grade, so I was uh, nine years old or something, eight years old, nine years old. And um, and since then, you know, there weren't too many Asian kids in the school. And I do remember being one of the few handful of Asian kids in the school. And and of the other Asian kids, you know, they were either like Korean or like one Japanese or something, and a few other Chinese students. And I mean, aside from the physical exterior, physical similarities, um, I did not speak their language and neither did they speak my language. So 
I never really felt an imperative to really join their communities or to hang out with them all the time, even though we were Asian at the time. And so... Who would you say did you hang out with? With just like everyone at the, at the school. Um, and like when you're a kid, you, I mean, you honestly don't pay attention to any of this stuff. Like, yeah, you, you don't have sort of a, a macro bird's eye view on, on all this stuff as a kid. So as long as you're playing around with all the other kids in the schoolyard and having fun and going out for lunch and recess and coming back to class after that. And it's just, uh, yeah. How was it for you to learn the new language? Pretty quick. I mean, kids pick up, I mean, right when you're a kid, usually kids and the neuroplasticity and the way kids pick up new languages, it's quite organic and it happens quickly. Uh, I mean, you, you take any kid from any region, you transplant them in another place and they pick up the new language pretty quickly. And If I get back to your roots, you know, the place where you were born, what does characterize your Mongolian identity? Yeah, I guess uh, I sort of had this, um, uh, what was it, uh, epiphany? Uh, not an epiphany per se, but realization. I came to a conclusion that like, because uh, in high school, I was in my freshman year of high school, so I was 14 years old at the time. I started taking Japanese because I knew that to finish high school, we had to take at least two years of a language. So I chose with Japanese because even from an early on age, I was cognizant of sort of my Asian background to a certain extent and I wanted to sort of build upon that and I decided to take Japanese instead of French Spanish or Latin yeah I mean we, our school didn't have that in high school but anyways yeah and then in my second or third year in high school we did a small two-week homestay a fortnight with a Japanese host family in, in Kyoto and I came back and I was like wow okay that's uh that was a pretty fascinating experience um being in japan for two weeks and fortnight and by that time i was like 15 and 16 so i was becoming a little bit more cognizant of really like who who am i like sort of putting myself in the context of everything else going around me and i thought okay yeah this is a good time to sort of resuscitate um my mongol heritage my mongol background and and it was also at the time the spread or the accessibility of digital media general digitalization of of media forms so it was becoming more accessible to access mongolian media newspaper radio music um all the content back from mongolia and whether that's in the states or elsewhere abroad so that facilitated my reconnection with with the uaheimat <laughs> so as to say but i mean up until then i mean it's just um It wasn't something that was on the top of my mind all the time. What would you say? What are the main aspects and uh, things, certain things that characterize, you know, um, Mongolian identity as, as, as nation itself? I think uh, the one feature that stands out the most, in my opinion, about Mongolian civilization and culture is that to a certain degree, and my take on it is that sort of in anthropological terms, nomadic society our mongolian nomadic way of life Weltanschauung, just mode of economy and, and, and lifestyle is basically as old as human civilization itself because a sedentary one is a more of a recent development in the human social structure and organization where societies choose to stay in one place to cultivate the land to grow crops and not have to seasonally move or move with the seasons and in that sense i think mongolians mongols and mongolian civilization has kept that nomadic um aspect of, of of human modus and i think that's what is quite unique about mongolian society still today that we have we <laughs> continue to 
to, to maintain our nomadic roots. Have you ever been to Mongolia after you and your parents moved to the US? Uh, technically speaking, yes, but it was really only for six days from what I remember. How was it? It was brief. It was, it was good. Got to see my grandparents um, and a few relatives and kind of jam-packed. But, you know, six days, not really much that you can squeeze into. I feel like our listeners and myself don't know that much about Mongolia as a country. And um, also, you, for example, you're the first person who I got to know who's from Mongolia, who was born there. So my question would be, uh, how is it like to live there? It's more like a basic question. What's the quality of life, for example, in Mongolia? What's the political, both political and economical situation in Mongolia? Yeah, how it's like to live there right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, big question. So um, again, to put it in a nutshell, one of the main challenges today is the sort of path for, you know, it, it's a tough life. It's a tough life from, from, from the stories that I hear from everyone else back home. Wages are low compared to other developed uh, economies. Um, most of the Mongol youth, um, and young folks, you know, everyone really goes abroad either to Europe or the, to North America or elsewhere in Asia to study, study abroad, work abroad, live abroad. And a lot of them do, um, it fluctuates. Uh, many of them do stay, many of them do come back. Uh, so it's a good mix. Um, and again, since the end of the socialist era in, in 18, 1989, um, 90s, you know, basically everyone has gone abroad to some capacity in one form or another and has come back or stayed abroad. So it's, uh, it's quite globalized, I guess, the, the Mongolian community across the world and everyone goes everywhere. Um, again, that's sort of the internal, natural, um, the autochthonous um, nomadic sense of like, you know, you can survive anywhere because I know Mongols who are everywhere from Australia to the UK to France and Germany and Japan and Korea, everyone goes abroad everywhere, Canada, US. So yeah, corruption is also another issue. Um, it's a small country and because of the small population, well, a small population, 3 million, and the majority of the sedentary population is in the capital city, Ulaanbaatar. And from, from what I've heard, nepotism is kind of a problem, corruption, um, you know, anything else that developing economies are still faced with today. And we don't have an access, direct access to the ocean or to the sea. So import exports always either has to go through our neighboring states and a um, bit of energy dependent on, on, on Siberian gas and oil. And uh, it means that you kind of st stay in touch, right? You're aware of the cultural, political, economical situation. What's going on right now in Mongolia? I mean, in terms of you read newspapers and magazines based in Mongolia, right? No, absolutely. Like I said, um, now with full-on digitalization, and Mongolia is caught up pretty quickly, not too bad in terms of uh, digitalization, everything from bureaucracy to social media to um, platforms being everything done online and being uploaded on, on the internet, YouTube, and so forth. So thankfully, I mean, I can just uh, pick up and read the newspaper. Which also means that if you one day go there, you wouldn't get lost, right? In terms of what's going on, like who are these people around me? Yeah, what's what's their I don't know nature. Yeah, I wouldn't be completely lost. Um, sure, I'll be a little bit out of context, but um, I do keep up with the news, and uh, not only just in Mongolia proper, but I also do read the Buryat news. So the Mongols and the Russian Federation 
when they publish uh, and whatever commentary they write in their social media, I always keep tabs on sort of Mongols abroad, in, both in North and South Mongolia. So geographically speaking, uh, Mongolia is a country between Russia and China. But what? how would you clarify this sentence? Yeah, but so whenever someone does mention this, I always try to clarify physically, like, yes, what is, what is seen on today's internationally agreed political borders on a map that we do border the Russian Federation in the north and the People's Republic of China in the south. But the two provinces, so the province, the Chinese province, or the province that is within today's PRC of China is called Inner Mongolia on a map. And that is the Sinocentric, the Chinese perspective on naming it. Uh, but we Mongols, we call it over Mongols. And in English, it's, I guess, it's Southern Mongolia. So from a Mongol perspective, it's, it's Southern Mongolia. It's, I make the analogy that during the 20th century, the communist um, uh, system sort of split up Germany into the East and West Germany, split up Vietnam into North and South Vietnam. North Vietnam was, was annexed by the communists and South Vietnam remained uh, independent uh, to whatever polity it was. Same thing with North and South Korea. The North Koreans were annexed by the communist system. And so the communist Chinese from 1949 annexed uh, southern Mongolia and took it as their own province, um, split up Mongolia into two. But then the Soviet and formerly the Russian Empire split again Mongolia into the northern part, which is like the Buryat speaking, the Kalmyk speaking, the Tubans, uh, and into northern Mongolia. So these are the Siberian Mongols, yeah, I guess, to, to roughly speaking. And so when someone says that, yes, Mongolia exists between China and Russia, but immediately on the other side of the border are still Mongols who we speak the same language, share the same everything. And No, yeah, I just, I, yeah, I love your clarification about the geographical position of Mongolia. But at the same time, I, I'm sure that the location between uh, those two countries might have had an impact on uh, public opinion in Mongolia, you know, in terms of, for example, Ukraine, right? I don't really know what's the official... Uh, governmental position in terms of you know the situation in Ukraine. What would you say about it? Uh, we, we we Mongols in Mongolia today on the ground level are are deeply uh, saddened by the war because again it's just there's no reason for it. It's it's uh, it's meaningless and um, it's a double genocide from from our perspective because the the Muscovy state and its most recent iteration right now is in his campaign in Eastern Ukraine, um, waging a campaign of genocide against Ukrainian culture, traditions, and everything Ukrainian, and replacing that with the Russian system. Um, and they have done that with uh, all the other non-Slavic ethnic peoples, nations, as the Russian Empire was expanding its way into the East, um, starting from the 15th and 16th century, the buddies Godunov and stuff like that. And uh, I mean, really, it was, what was it, Tsar? Um, the, uh, Ivan Grozny II, the son, right. who, right. who conquered the Siberian Khanate of, uh, of, of, of Tatarstan. Um, other, Kal- other Mongols, Buryats, Kalmyks, Mongols today, Mongolia, like everyone, we're, we're fighting the same war against the same centralized Muscovy genocidal Russian state-led system that is trying to piece together its Russian empire and this so-called Zoginante Ruski Mir. And so this is just what is disgusting. And um, and so we're on the same, fighting the same good fight. Because what this regime, this dictatorship, um, autocracy is doing is 
trying to hit two birds with one stone, d- eliminate and destroy all ethnic minority peoples in Russia by sending them off to Ukraine to fight. And they're not sending the little white Russian boys with blonde hair and blue eyes from Moscow and St. Petersburg or, 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 or uh, Yekaterinburg or something else. And so, and then this is, I think, what the, sen- the sentiment of, of most Mongols back in Mongolia is today. Yeah, I mean, we, we stand in solidarity with Ukraine. Let's get back to the identity topic. And um, my first question was about your Mongolian identity. And my next one would be about your American identity. What does characterize you as an American? I think for me, uh, it was I definitely got a better sense of that when I was studying in college for four years in my undergrad uh, in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. So Pittsburgh, this is uh, on the western side of the Appalachian Mountains in western Pennsylvania. Pittsburgh is closer to Chicago than it is to DC or New York, if I'm not mistaken, on a map. And so in that sense, like uh, having grown up in Boston area, in the suburbs of Boston and in, in, in New England, so back stateside, it's more of a political term, I guess, or, or, or geographical term to describe the northeastern part of the states as New England, because it was the former colonies of England, so it turned into New England, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. Great thing about New England is that no matter what the seasons are, there's always something good to do in terms of sports and getting outside. Go skiing in the winter up in the mountains in New Hampshire, White Mountains and Green Mountains of Vermont. In the summer, you go down to the Cape or on the beaches. You go swimming in the, in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, in the autumn, you go leaf peeping with your class or, yeah, go out for a good hike in the mountains. So. And then so in that sense, like even in school, so you learn about the Revolutionary War every year. I remember, for example, in fourth grade, what was it? They took us to a small field trip to... Bunker Hill, where the first battle of the Revolutionary War happened in Breed's Hill, because um, it was the Battle of Bunker and Breed's Hill. And so you learn it in class, and then the same afternoon, you take like a 30-minute bus ride in the school bus, yellow school bus, and, and you're there, and you see it on the ground, the Boston Massacre, you learn about that, and then you walk down to the spot where it happened. And so the sort of like <laughs> Boston Tea Party revolutionary spirit and from the school education that you get, you're definitely immersed in that, which apparently is not the same as what happens in other parts of the States. And so when I went to Pittsburgh for college, um, I remember this one professor in our transatlantic policy analysis class asked us distinctly, uh, raise your hands if you believe that the statement that the uh, American exceptionalism is true or, or that America is an exceptional country. And then I, I really didn't even hesitate. As soon as I heard the question, I just like, I just raised my hand. We are a shining city upon a hill. Um, John Winthrop, the Mass Bay Colony, that was sort of built on a Talmudic utopian notion of making a new society, a better world. And that was sort of the genesis of American ex- exceptionalism. And having grown up there as a local kid in the schools, and you just kind of like, you grow up with it. And then <laughs> you really do believe in American exceptionalism for, for what it is. Prior to that, I've heard stories of how other foreigners or um, people from other countries uh, talk about Americans as being like uh, exceedingly individualistic society, and there's nothing really collectivist about it. Everyone is like taking care of their own little pie, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of thing. But then coming here to Europe and in Germany, I have a sense that, you know, to some extent, maybe <laughs> the Germans in Germany here is even more of an individualist society than, than, than what we have in the state. Because on, on, on sort of uh, not on a superficial level, but on 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 the first get go when you interact with people, 
you know, Americans are a little bit more friendlier and, and not as like geschlossen and not as closed. Uh, so it's easier on the daily interactions and, and you, you have a sense of that sort of uh, fluidity that you do not get in the same way that as one does here. Yeah, just from what I feel, my gut feeling is that, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Europe is also pretty individualist, especially in Western Europe and like uh, this, this, this part of Europe. So this topic, which is bothering me as well, is that how do you get integrated in a society in the U.S.? Was it difficult for you? How difficult? Uh, did you face any kind of racism or any kind of bullying? Or was it that just you got accepted because it's a melting pot, like we mentioned earlier, and, and then it just only depends on you, right? How you show yourself what qualities you have and how professional you are and etc. etc. So it's just that acceptance on a higher level than, let's say, in West Europe. I mean, <laughs> so that's a blessing and a curse is that like uh, back in the States, I mean, with most other folks who have no sort of context on like other cultures and other non-Americans in the sense is that like it usually comes off across as, as harmless or innocent. There is no bad intent behind it unless it's overtly... Yeah, uh, intended to be to be racist by calling like bad names or something. Um, yeah, I mean, otherwise they're just curious and they just don't have a sort of a polite way to phrase their questions or something the way they, they state something. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. The way American modern society does categorize to an extent with, um, you know, like little communities, although say oh, like uh, Desi community, South Asian community, East Asians, and then even within that, Some people will break it down to like by, by, by nationality, country, language, uh, speakers, communities, and so forth. So it's, it's good, especially in like New York City and the big cities. Um, you have these little, uh, little communities and exclaves of towns, you know, K-Town, J-Town, Chinatown. But compared to here in Europe or in Germany, um, there's just a different situation, different environment. There's not as much of that going on here as it is in the States. My last question would be marked with a label back to the roots. Namely, have you ever considered going back to Mongolia and settle down there? Because you would definitely have just great options of job opportunities and lifestyle and your cries of people who are close to you because you can speak Mongolian, you can speak English, you graduated from the university in the US and now you're doing your master in Germany and you're about to gain some experience here in the West Europe. I mean, this just, you know, a suitcase full of just open doors everywhere in Mongolia. Yeah, you know, it's something I thought about um, long and hard. Um, probably at the end of the day, you know, I, I think that ship has sailed a long while ago. So I think uh, it's best to stake out My, my, my future years back stateside than to have to return to Mongolia or elsewhere in Europe. There is something personal I'd like to share with you at the end of this episode, and this personal is about my sister, beautiful Sofia. She turned 15 this week, and I'm grateful for having such a great sister. Such a good person with a pure, innocent soul. Every tomorrow is just another step on the long journey ahead of her life. At this point, maybe I just want to say that 
I love her with all my heart. Sometimes it's easier to let strangers know that I love my sister than just saying it to her directly. It is what it is, we are who we are. Despite not being that close, she is the one I'll stay with after our parents are gone. And I know that I'll be in good hands. On this episode we talked a lot about growing up in a different environment but still feeling okay and most importantly having the feeling of belonging. Belonging. I'm like that guy, Ted Lasso, but instead of believe, I'll put belong on the wall. I believe in belonging everywhere in Germany, but most importantly in the German school system, if you are a foreigner. And there is this question I have been asking myself. Why in the US, if you are a foreigner, going to school is not a painful drama? Why it's not a nice bucket challenge? Why it is okay? And why in Germany, going to school is almost always overcoming yourself? Why my sister screams sometimes in the early morning, I hate this place, I wanna go home? Why almost all the stories of foreigners in Germany who have experienced going through a school system claim that it was a complicated experience? And why it's not like my guest Solo says, it's not that bad? A lot of whys and no because. But I have a dream. I have a dream that all the foreigners in Germany who interact with the German school system will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by their roots but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Oh yeah, if you haven't noticed the sound at the beginning, it was made naturally by Solo with a traditional Mongolian harmonica. And the sound in the end will be his own voice. Thank you and take care. Yeah. <laughs>